Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers. Trial Tested is a discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Dave Paul, and I will be your host for today's episode. Good afternoon. Today's guest is Rick Friedman. Rick is a graduate of Antioch College and Harvard Law School. He's practiced all over the United States. He is a member of the American College and the Inner Circle and the International Academy of Trial Lawyers. He's a published author on a number of books about trial law. He's a teacher of lawyers and uh, really a major influencer in how cases are thought about and tried today. Rick, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks, Dave. I'm looking forward to this. Where I'd love to start with you is, did you ever in a thousand years when you began practicing as a sole practitioner in Alaska, envision your life to look like it does now? Well, no, I didn't think I would stick with law. I actually thought I was going to practice for a few years, kind of on the side. You know, I thought, hey, I can charge $65 an hour. Shoot, I can work 10 hours a week on that. And the rest of the time I'll devote to being a novelist. But I got kind of sucked into law and then never turned back. But that was not my original plan. What is it about law that for you has led you to stick it out as long as you have? I love the fact that it's always different. You know, I guess one of my primary traits is curiosity. And so I'm constantly getting the opportunity to learn Right now, I'm learning about toxic chemicals and, you know, you get exposed to so many different things and so many different people. I've met some very dear friends I met only because I was a lawyer, inspirational clients only because I was a lawyer. I can't think of another job that is as mentally and emotionally stimulating as being a trial lawyer. Yes. It seems when I look at the kinds of cases you've handled, insurance, bad faith, civil rights, medical malpractice, toxic torts, whistleblowers, defamation, wrongful termination, sexual harassment, gender discrimination, HMO litigation, aviation law. It seems like you have done just such a wide range of torts rather than specialize in one small slice. Is that the curiosity playing out or something else? Part, I think necessity, curiosity, restlessness. <laughs> and so, I mean, early in my career, I did a lot of criminal cases. Not that I wanted to be a criminal lawyer, but I did a lot of criminal cases because I thought that was the best way to get trial experience as soon as I could. And then with the civil cases, pretty early, I developed kind of a specialty in employment law. And, you know, got to the point, I was practicing still in Alaska, where I pretty much knew everything. <laughs> I knew every case, every published opinion and what page the particular holding was in. I knew what the defendants were going to do before they did it. I was making a good living and it was getting boring. Later, I started doing insurance bad faith cases and my partner, Jeff Rubin, and I were being quite successful. And we had you know, a couple serious talks because Jeff's view was, hey, we should just stick with bad faith and have a bad faith firm. And again, the idea of only doing bad faith for the rest of my career, I just... Now, part of that was in Alaska, it's pretty slim pickings. You know, it's yeah. 500,000 people. So... 
that's the necessity part. We had to take whatever walked in the door. But as we went more into the lower 48, we did have to make a decision about whether to emphasize bad faith. And of course, we still do a lot of bad faith, but I just, it would probably would have been a smarter business plan to specialize, <laughs> but I don't know if I could have stuck with it if we'd done that. Yeah. I think there's a trade-off to specialization in particular with the kind of stifling the curiosity side. You early on in your career from other talks that you've given, I was struck by the story of kind of your first experience in court at the age of 21. Do you mind just briefly sharing that? <laughs> well, I was working for the summer between second and third year of law school for the DA's office. And I kept asking my boss, I want to do a trial. I want to do a trial. And I was thinking I'd do one with him, the DA in Ketchikan, Alaska. And he was settling most of his cases. And one day he came up to me, I got a case for you. It's attempted fish snagging. You go prosecute this. <laughs> and I said, well, aren't you coming? <laughs> he said, no, you could do it alone. And I said, but I've never had a course in evidence. And he said, well, that's all right. If somebody objects on hearsay grounds, just say you're offering it not for the truth of the matter asserted, which <laughs> I had no idea what he was saying. And he sent me in there to try the case. I'd never even seen a voidir, but I had kind of the general idea what you were supposed to do. I stood up to voidir the jury panel, and I literally could not get any words out. Nothing would come out. Before or since, I've never had this happen. I would open my mouth like a goldfish trying to make something come out and nothing would come out. And I went back to my table and shuffled with my papers, went back in front of the jury, tried again, went back to the table, took a drink of water, tried again. And finally, the judge said, well, if you're not going to ask them any questions, I will. And he started his voidir and I sat down in complete humiliation. And that was my first trial experience. They're priceless, though. They're good educational tools anyway for uh, when I'm on the CLE circuit. Kind of in my early days of doing CLE, my point was always, if a neurotic mess like me can try cases, so can you. That was kind of my message. And I guess in a way, it's still my message. When did you become comfortable in the courtroom? Yesterday. <laughs> you know, honestly, there are different levels of comfort, I guess I would say. And it took about 10 years before I wasn't throwing up in the mornings before trial. It took about 15 before I started feeling kind of like, oh, I'm semi-competent at this. And, you know, quite frankly, it's only been maybe the last five or six years where I've actually enjoyed trying cases. <laughs> How many years had you been practicing before that? <laughs> I've been practicing 43 years now. So after about 30 years, I started to feel comfortable, I would say. What shifted? It's kind of a long, involved story, but partly it's competence. You know, I began to feel more and more comfortable in my own competence. But I think at the heart of it is and was that for psychological reasons, I'm not proud of saying this, but... For me, the cases were not about the clients. Not that I didn't care about the clients and want to help them. I certainly did. But in terms of, you know, the hierarchy inside my being, the primary thing was me. And so, you know, my first trials, I give this silent prayer. I don't care if I win or lose. Just don't let me look ridiculous. <laughs> and that's really how I felt. Like if I could just look and perform like a real lawyer, then 
okay, that's the main goal, whether I win or lose is secondary. But as time went on, of course, I did want to win. And as you know, I assume you know, nothing hurts worse than getting a defense verdict, you know, getting rejected by the jury. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah. But for some reason, well, I have clues to the reasons, but, you know, it felt like literally a matter of life and death if I lost a case. Like the internal stakes were so out of proportion to the actual stakes that I was under enormous self-imposed pressure to win. It was so unrealistic. Like I said, it felt like life or death. And I think partly getting older, partly having lost enough cases, partly thinking about why am I so terrified every time I go into court, you know? So a lot of it was just plain old introspection. I was well into therapy. I've been in therapy about 22 years now. The therapy helped a lot. Psychodrama helped a lot. So it's been a variety of things that have evolved to get me to the point where I actually do enjoy trial now. And, you know, now it's time for me to retire. At least that's what my wife says. And, you know, <laughs> or not. Or not. But, you know, it's like, how can I retire when I'm finally, after all these years, actually starting to enjoy things? Mm. Well, I had the pleasure of interviewing a very prominent lawyer a few weeks ago who's practicing at 81 at a very high level. And when I asked him, when do you want to retire? What I left there with was, you know, people retire to do something they want to do. And he said, I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing. So it's challenged me a little bit to think about the ages of retirement. I want to follow up on this shift for you where you move from, you know, and I appreciate your transparency of trying cases, doing it successfully, but knowing there's a piece of you that the cases weren't fully about the clients. When I look at that myself, I find that a painful self-analysis. Was it painful for you? Uh no, I don't think so. I credit Jerry Spence with being the first person I know of to really kind of popularize the idea that the client is paramount. I mean, obviously that was in the ethics rules and the lore of the profession, but as a practical matter, you know, my impression of the old time trial lawyers that I've rubbed elbows with and talked with over the years and what I've read that back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, there was a certain archetype of a trial lawyer, you know, hard hitting, hard drinking, womanizing, cynical, manipulative, clever person who sometimes won, sometimes lost, but didn't give it a whole lot of thought. Yeah, my job is to represent the client. Now, I'm not being fair to a lot of old time lawyers when I say that, but I'm not saying they never cared about their clients or any of that. But that self-image and that archetype, I think, was pretty prevalent. I landed in Alaska when that was still the prevailing attitude. It was not spoken. It was by their behavior and their attitude. And of course, they would profess to care about their clients, and they did. But the overarching thing was it was about them. And I have wrestled with that my whole career. Like, shouldn't I care more? Should I care less? I think Jerry Spence, when he kind of argued for a more client-centric view of the world, I think some people took his teachings and went too far the other direction, quite frankly. 
I think every lawyer struggles with that. You know, you don't want a surgeon who cares too much, right? This is an example I'll use sometimes. You know, you're waiting for your surgery. You're in the hospital. You're all prepped. You're going to have surgery the following morning. The surgeon comes in to check in on how you're doing. You know, you say, I'm fine. And then you say to your surgeon, geez, you look kind of nervous. Is everything okay? And the surgeon says, oh, yeah, you know, I've done this operation a hundred times. I'm very confident it's going to turn out all right. I'm just so worried about you. I just care so much about you. I just don't want to make a mistake. I'm so worried and concerned about you that, you know, I'm a little rattled by that. I mean, who wants that surgeon? Not me. (laughs) Who wants that lawyer? Not me. So I think there's a middle way in this stuff that every lawyer's got to find their place. For me in the beginning, I cared about the clients, but the priority was me. I think distanced myself from that. I've grown from that. But geez, I don't know. I think you can go too far the other direction as well. And I think everybody's constantly calibrating. You know, sometimes I'm representing clients I can't stand. Sometimes I'm representing clients I love and everything in between. But, you know, in a way that's irrelevant. In my view, plaintiff lawyers have this easier than defense lawyers, I think. But in my view, one of the ways I've dealt with that is to recognize that Really, the issues in this case are bigger than me and they're bigger than my client, actually. That has helped me a lot, both in dealing with my fear and nervousness and also dealing with my ego. The distinction between a plaintiff lawyer and a defense lawyer, I think, is fair because as I tell my kids whenever they ask me about a case, I remind them, you know, I choose my cases. I'm looking at my cases. I'm looking at the clients. I'm looking at the cause. The lawyers on the other side, they get assigned the case. Right. It's the difference between fighting in the Ukrainian army or the Russian army right now, right? Yes. I know you're not the only person who struggles with this enormous self-imposed pressure to win and a feeling of almost winning being life and death. I know many of us experience that in real ways. What are some of the things that you have found in your journey of trying a lot of cases, big cases around the country, what are some of the tools or the strategies you've used to help you wrestle and deal with this self-imposed pressure, the enormous feelings that can go along with the fear of losing? Well, that's a topic I could talk for hours on, but number one, therapy. You know, I've made a vow to myself about five or six years ago that any CLE or public appearance I engaged in, I would find a way to work in therapy because I think every single trial lawyer needs therapy. And the less they think they need it, the more they need it. I'm an advocate as well, in part, just by personal necessity. This feels like a modern trend, you know, where people are comfortable talking about mental health and therapy If I remember correctly, your wife is a psychodramatist and a therapist. Is that right? Yeah. She was a plaintiff lawyer for 25 years and quite successful. Got tired of all the fighting and took some time off. And as luck would have it, I was just getting exposed to psychodrama at that time and invited her to workshop and she loved it and she went back to school and got a master's in mental health counseling and she has individual 
clients. She has consulting she does, and she does psychodrama as well. For those people that are not familiar with psychodrama, can you give the snapshot summary? It was developed by a guy named Moreno. He was a contemporary of Freud and Jung, although I think younger. And basically his idea was, okay, if lying on a couch or sitting in a chair and talking about this stuff can help you, if we get up and move around and engage more than just our minds in whatever we're doing, it's going to be even more effective. He's credited, I think, with coming up with all kinds of techniques that are pretty common now, like role reversal, talking to the chair, things like that. But basically what happens in psychodrama is you get a group of people together and act out events. You know, it could be an event from childhood, could be an event from yesterday, could be an event you hope to happen in the future. But by acting it out, you engage other parts of our system because the brain is not separate from the rest of us. You know, we probably all read about there like a gazillion nerve endings in our digestive system probably where the gut feeling comes from. And so one way to think of it is it's a form of group therapy, although it can be a lot more than that. I usually explain it by saying it's torture, but it's really good for you at the end. <laughs> you will be a better human being who is more in touch. Why do you believe mental health therapy is so important for trial lawyers? Well, you know, in my recent book, I put together a classified ad for trial lawyers. And it reads, wanted, lawyer willing to work in a competitive, hostile environment, <laughs> must be willing to interact on a daily basis with other lawyers whose job it will be to make sure that you fail. Sometimes those interactions will be in person, sometimes by phone or email. Those interactions will be constant, every day. Must be willing to work many nights, weekends, and holidays. Reading, assimilating, and producing mountains of paperwork required. Occasional trials will be required. During trials, expect to work 16 to 20 hours per day and battle your opponents in front of 12 strangers and a judge who may have the inclination to help you lose. Stakes will be high if you lose, dot, dot, dot. And, you know, for plaintiff lawyers, financial disaster, and so on. So, like, who's attracted to a job like that? Sign me up. Right, exactly. I mean... A normal, well-adjusted person is not going to be attracted to the job like that. Now, you may become normal and well-adjusted over the years as you mature, but getting to that place, you know, seeking out that job, it's a classic example of traumatized people repeating their trauma. That's what we do. So, and the problem, of course, for lawyers, if it was all just personal, then it's all just personal. But the fact is, you know, we bring this history with us into the courtroom. So I don't know if my father would beat me every Saturday when he came home from work or would bully and berate me and call me stupid and things like that. Then I walk into a courtroom and there's a judge who rules against me or even worse, a judge who's literally bullying, but it wouldn't even have to rise to that level. I'm going to respond, even though I don't think I am, part of my response is based on what happened to me historically and not what's going on in the present in the courtroom. And I see lawyers all the time acting out their trauma in their careers. And I think that's why we see 
people like Avenatti, you know, a very talented lawyer crashing and burning. But on a more mundane level, that's why we see lawyers not handling themselves so well in the courtroom. They're burdened by the life they had before becoming lawyers. I've heard you say before that the courtroom is just not the place to really work out your issues. There's just too much going on in there. Yeah, right. Yeah. Not a place to get your needs met. So I think therapy is a way of starting to get at that. And, you know, since I've started working that in somehow to my CLE talks, I'll bet at least once a month, sometimes more, someone will email me, call me, or I'll bump into them and they'll say, thanks so much for pushing the therapy. It's changed my life dramatically, both professionally and personally, and I never would have done it had I not been pushed to it. You know, it's the carrot for lawyers. If you tell them you need therapy and you'll be happier, no one will do it. If you tell them they'll be a better lawyer if they do it, they'll do it. I think it's true. It's relatively recent that it's not so shameful to talk about. But the famous plaintiff lawyer, Mo Levine, in terms of lasting legacy, probably the most famous lawyer from the 50s and 60s, plaintiff lawyer, he did therapy for about four years. I stumbled across this tape that trial guides had from a CLE he did in the early 60s. And he's talking, the subject of the CLE was how to recover for emotional and mental distress. And he was asked some question and it kind of turned into this answer about his own therapy and how he'd gone to therapy. Back then they called it analysis. He'd been in analysis for four or five years. And Jerry Spence, you know, had decades of, I believe, individual and group therapy. Now, he didn't talk about it much because he came from generations like Mo Levine's generation, where not something you want to talk about. But Spence made the entire trial college curriculum revolve around psychodrama because he felt so strongly that that was just so important. So it's not a recent thing, but I think it's recent that people are more openly talking about it. Yes. Well, dealing with that feeling like winning or losing is life or death. One of the things you've done clearly is a lot of work on Rick Friedman through therapy and otherwise. What else has helped you to get to a place where even after you were successful, you weren't comfortable that now you've hit this place where you're not experiencing that life or death at the same level you used to? Well, I think psychodramas helped a lot. I do view that as slightly different than therapy, at least the way I've been using it and exposed to it. Partly, it's been some thoughts that are not particularly creative or unique. But for me, the recognition that we are all going to be dead in 100 years and no one's going to remember anything we did or said, (laughs) you know, so it's kind of like to me, what we are in love with and what torments us is our egos. And the more right-sized I can get about my importance in the world and my role in the world, you and I both know lawyers who have had smashing success, big verdicts, you know, written up in the newspaper all the time, on TV, who are just miserable in their lives. Yes. Just miserable. And ultimately, I think, particularly in this profession, if you want to be truly happy, You have to dig down into why am I doing this? What am I hoping to accomplish? What do I want to get out of it? And 
over a period of time, what evolved for me is what you see in my books, particularly the last one, is this is my personal feeling about it. Like, I'm not in this world to accumulate as much money as I can, to be as famous as I can. I'm in this world to express certain values. You know, I do like fighting for things I believe in. I like working for things that I believe in, but I can't determine how it comes out. I guess that's part of it too. I began to recognize how much luck plays in the outcomes of our tribe. Yes. And so that's helped as well. So it's been this evolution of a lot of different pieces coming together. I did have an epiphany gosh, maybe 12, 13 years ago. I don't know how long it's been. I had a case against Yamaha, jet ski case that I never should have taken, but I got blinded by the gigantic damages involved. The guy was making like, I don't know what it was now, but something like five or $6 million a year. Our economic loss numbers were up over a hundred million. Someone else had tried it to a hung jury and we were going to do it again. And they asked me in and Long story short, we lost the case. And afterwards, we're out in the hallway and Yamaha has, as best I can tell, they have two people for each juror to interview the jurors afterwards out in the hall. So they're all interviewing everybody. And, you know, we're dejected. We just lost a big trial. The people on the Yamaha team came up and, you know, shook our hands and said, good job and, you know, very professional And then they hung around for a while and wanted to keep talking. And I was trying to figure out what's that about. And it kind of dawned on me that, you know, they didn't feel so good about what had just happened. Mm. And that really all we can do as plaintiff lawyers, and like I said, the issues are bigger than the client and certainly bigger than us. Like this battle between good and evil is never going to end. And it's not like there's a finish line in that battle. There's not like there's a finish line in my life. You know, I'll win some, I'll lose some. And it's more about, am I manifesting in this world? Am I expressing to this world the things I want to express? You know, it's interesting on the losing piece. Yeah. I've often thought a great talk would be on learning to lose, you know, just learning how to lose well, because, you know, if you are a trial lawyer, it is inevitable. There is no avoiding it. It doesn't matter who you are. And the fear of losing, the catastrophizing, the crushing of the ego I would be curious, you know, if you were writing the curriculum for my hypothetical learning to lose well, what would some of the topics be? There's actually a whole chapter of that (laughs) in one of my books, but the curriculum, I think is going to be different for everybody. I think the first curriculum is a lot of us, and partly it's encouraged by the culture. You know, we take ourselves as a given, like we're set in amber or something like, you know, I'm an angry person. I have a short temper. I'm disorganized. I'm a perfectionist. I'm this, I'm that. I take trials really seriously. I cannot stand losing. Well, you know, why are you a perfectionist? Why are you an angry person or quick to anger? Why can't you stand losing? What's going on inside that makes that feel like a matter of life or death? And, you know, one thing I do at some of the CLEs is I'll ask people to make a list of who they are. 
you know, when you think of yourself, who are you? And different people come up with different things, but maybe like, I'm my body. I'm my body of knowledge that I have in my brain. I'm my personality that's really quick at telling jokes and really good at telling jokes. And make a list of all the things that are you. How many of those things, when you lose a case, are you going to lose? The answer is nothing. <laughs> you know, Unless you decide to give them up, you're not going to lose anything. But if you work hard and do your best, that's all the client can ask for. And that's all you can really ask of yourself. That's good. Well, you mentioned who am I and who are you as good questions over the course of kind of going back over and looking at a few of your books and watching a couple of videos. I've seen you refer to trial lawyers as social workers, teachers, performers, riverboat gamblers, <laughs> quick study experts, private investigators negotiators and advocates, which of those do you most identify with? Hmm. I think teacher, truth teller, and advocate. I guess I would say advocate for human values. I mean, we live in a time where human and humane values are under such assault. So yeah, I guess those are the ones I most identify with. These pieces of you, the piece that I haven't seen in researching you is really your upbringing. It seems like the public stories of Rick Friedman kind of begin at Harvard, you know, and then Alaska, all of which are interesting. But I'm curious, what really shaped you growing up in this truth teller realm and the advocate for human values? Where does that come from? Well, to their credit... I think both of my parents had a pretty strong social conscience. The message I got was if you find a job you believe in and enjoy, the rest of your life will fall into place. But the reality was I grew up in a pretty emotionally deprived childhood that really the only real comfort I had in my life was through books and the only real strong guidance I got about how to be a grown-up, how to be a man, came from books. My mother would jokingly refer to her parenting style as benign neglect. My therapist <laughs> says it was not as benign, but you know, in any event. So I turned to books and I kind of honestly, you know, found people I admired who inspired me and I tried to emulate them and I tried to understand like why they were inspiring me. And, you know, I came to regard my life, everybody's life as kind of a work of art, you know, like you can craft every decision you make, especially the ones involving other people kind of crafts, shapes, sculpts who you are. What books formed your view on this is what it means to be an adult? This is what it means to be a man. When you were younger, what were the most formative books? Well, that's the problem is, you know, I was reading things that were steeped in Western culture. To a large extent, Western culture is deeply dysfunctional. So, you know, the kinds of things I read were stories about Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone and, you know, war stories from the Civil War and the Revolutionary War. And, you know, they're all about adventure 
and sort of the twisted American view of heroism, right? Of sort of strong, silent, never complaining, that kind of personality was the beginning. And, you know, in a way it was necessary because I needed to claw my way out of my place I started, my kind of emotionally destitute place. And the only thing I had to work with was my mind and my book reading. So I read everything I could get a hold of. And I wouldn't say any particular book was influential. It's more like by reading so much, I kind of internalized certain heroic image. You know, it ultimately became a heroic image of a trial lawyer. But Really, I was deeply unhappy, you know, from as long as I can remember. <laughs> but I wouldn't have said that, you know, like I didn't know any different. So part of what I think what your question's getting at is, you know, I'm unhappy and traumatized and really strongly needing and wanting love. And I get out of my house of origin as soon as I can and go to college and get out of college as soon as, you know, I'm in a race to become an adult thinking that's got to be better than being a child <laughs> and arrived at adulthood, you know, right at 22 with a law degree and a law practice and emotionally crippled. And that emotional crippling continued for decades. And so it's been my effort to cure myself that I think has played a big role in kind of how I've come to see my role in this profession. Mm, that's good. It's really good. I had to ask about the book because I read that one book that you spent some time with when you were younger was Ayn Rand. <laughs> I'm trying to draw the dots from Ayn Rand to someone who, to me, would seem to be a healer. You know, that may be an overstatement, but you know what I'm saying. You want to bring reconciliation into the world. So tell me tension there. Well, right. Yeah. I mean, of course, I came out of law school and Ayn Rand, Republican, Libertarian, hardcore. And I was got into the real world and started to see how the real world works and realized that's a heartless philosophy. It's interesting. It's intellectually stimulating. I... I'm really glad I read those books. So yeah, I don't think there was a single book. I think what happened was I arrived at practicing law with no compass, no idea, other than this sort of, yeah, what we're all downloaded with, at least all men in American culture, at least back in the 60s and 70s, you know, this sort of heroic ideal to live up to. And as I began to try to act that out, it was not very satisfying and it wasn't very comforting and it didn't bring me the things I think I unconsciously wanted. And in fairness, it did bring me a lot. I mean, caused me to work very, very hard, caused me to do things other people would have been afraid of doing. But, you know, a lot of it was born of a sense of desperation and having no other choice, you know, feeling emotionally like I had no other choice. Hmm. One of the key takeaways from your book, The Way of the Trial Lawyer, and a lot of your talks is this concept of the power of moral authority in the courtroom. So I'd like to talk about the concept, drill down on that a little bit. The concept that moral authority is a superpower in the courtroom. What do you mean when you talk about moral authority? 
one way to explain it might be this. You know, if you walk into a courtroom and you see the typical, you know, rear-end accident case where a 50-year-old office manager has neck and back problems after being rear-ended, and you watch that case, it looks pretty mundane and straightforward. But underneath the surface, if you really look closely at what's going on, the plaintiff lawyer is saying, you know, John can't go fishing with his son every Saturday like he once did. And the defense position is, well, that's really not worth very much money. You know, you're still friends with your son and you still do stuff and it's not worth very much. You know, you're still able to hold your job as an office manager, so nothing has been lost. He says, I can't sleep through the night and it makes me irritable with my wife and kids. And they say, well, that has no dollar value and on and on. And so you begin to see that even in this mundane case, there's kind of a clash of values going on between human values, you know, the things that actually make life worth living and corporate values that are pretty much infected every aspect of our culture which is, you know, if you can't quantify it, if you cannot put a dollar value on it, then it's trivial and unimportant. I mean, we pay lip service to these things being priceless, but the reality of how our culture runs is that those things are disposable. You know, you're expected to work on Saturdays and not go fishing with your son so you can climb the corporate ladder and so on. So I see this clash of values. And if you can recognize the clash of values from the plaintiff's standpoint and harness that, you've got a huge advantage over the other side. Because of course, you know, the jurors are not corporations, but individuals. And I think there's a hunger in our society to reconnect with, you know, true moral values that are really shared across the board. I think there are some positive moral values on the defense side. And while I'm not a defense lawyer, I do like the examples in your book of using medical malpractice cases on the kind of moral authority of a doctor who is legitimately trying to help someone. Sure. I mean, that's huge moral force of a defense argument in a med mal case. Absolutely. And then my takeaway from your book has been pretty much like every trial is almost a competing battle of morality. I think it is. I think that's the way jurors experience the trial. You know, maybe not the way lawyers experience it, but I think that's the way jurors want to do what's right. And they're sniffing out, even if they don't intellectually understand everything that's going on, although I think they understand more than we think they do, but... You know, even if they don't, really their sensors are geared towards, you know, not doing what's the logically right thing to do, but what's the morally right thing to do. Yes. I watched a video of you years ago, and what my takeaway was if my moral reason why we should win isn't better than theirs, I should probably lose. Yeah. Isn't that right? I think. Although, I mean, there are exceptions, of course, you know, in criminal cases criminal defense. Sometimes criminal defense deserves to win. But again, you can usually hitch that to a moral reason, like, you know, the police tortured the confession out of him, so we deserve to win, even though he really did do the crime. I think the hardest is for criminal defense lawyers, because the moral tightrope you have to walk as a criminal defense lawyer is, I think, way more difficult to navigate. Plaintiff lawyers have the easiest one, I think. 
As someone who is actively trying cases right now, what are you seeing as some of the prevailing moral values of the current juries? Well, one thing that struck me, you know, I've done about three long trials in the last year and a half. The feedback we're getting, even more than usual, is jurors saying, you know, we so appreciated that you didn't go personal. You were professional and polite at all times. You didn't lose your temper. I think people are exhausted from the hatred and vitriol that's flowing through this country. They're just tired of it. And so I see that a lot. They specifically say thank you for being professional and polite and courteous at all times. I think the other thing we're seeing is a sense that I guess there's a pendulum. You know, in the 60s and 70s, law was thought of and viewed as a way of achieving social justice and changing the world. And, you know, we had the war in court. And then in the early 80s, right about the time I started practicing, there was this tort reform movement where corporate America just pounded the population with propaganda about the tort system and the pendulum swung back. And I think jurors as a rule were very suspicious of plaintiffs, of plaintiff lawyers, of litigation. I mean, you've seen it all, you've heard it all. I don't need to <laughs> speak to the choir here, but I think we had an uphill battle for a long time. And for whatever reason, I think the Trump administration, the pandemic, various other forces like that. I think in a way, the curtain's been pulled back on kind of how this country runs and who has the power. And I see, you know, the last year or two, the verdicts have been astronomical. And I think it's a reflection of jurors finally figuring out how this system actually runs. And this is the best time to be a plaintiff lawyer in my 43 years of practicing. And I think it's because people are finally beginning to see how these things work. I want to get practical for a couple minutes. One of the things I noted when I was checking out your website was this concept of having a separate settlement council. Very intriguing to me. Tell me a little bit about that. I don't think I'm the first person to do it, but particularly as my cases have gotten bigger, I mean, it's another skill set. We all think we're good at negotiating. It's sort of like, you know, what is it? Something like 90% of Americans think they're better than average drivers. 90% of lawyers think they're good negotiators. <laughs> and kind of what tipped it for me was I was doing a bunch of cases for coal miners in Kentucky. We had about 500 coal miners. This is maybe five, six, seven years ago. We started these cases and who appeared on the other side was national counsel for one of the defendants in a private firm who I had known from about 10 years earlier because I'd done a case with him. But he'd risen. He's like super prominent negotiator for these giant mass torts and so on. And when we had our first conversation, I realized this guy's going to negotiate rings around me. So I brought in a negotiator who I think is the best I've ever been exposed to and asked him if he would be in charge of negotiating the cases. And I could focus on just doing what I do best, I hope, which is try cases. And he could focus on what he does best, which is negotiate cases. And it worked very, very well. I think on both sides, defense and plaintiff lawyers get wrapped up in the case and their egos get wrapped up and, you know, all sorts of reasons why they're probably not the best person to be negotiating. Yes. 
I want to ask you about silence. I love this quote I had in my notes. It was the skill of thoughtful, strategic waiting. What are your thoughts on silence in the courtroom? Well, I think particularly young lawyers are afraid of silence. Witnesses are afraid of silence. You know, everybody's afraid of silence. And part of the reason for the fear, I think, is that it's so powerful and it feels like it's an uncontrolled power. But, you know, if you're giving an opening statement or closing argument or a speech, there's nothing quite as effective as just stopping for a second at the right time, letting the silence fill the room. But especially when you're nervous, the tendency is to just keep talking and talking and fill the silence. So it makes a point. But more than that, it shows, I think, a certain type of power and self-confidence that you can't get any other way. So I came around to befriending silence and then try to teach people to make friends with it. I want to talk about one more big overarching topic. You write and talk a lot about the cancer of comparison. Explain that. Well, we're in a highly competitive job. It's human nature to compare anyway. You know, I mean, there've been social science study after social science study. You know, I'm happy with my two car garage and my two cars until I see you get a three car garage and three cars and certain number of people, that's enough to get them thinking, gosh, I only have two. I mean, I think it's just hardwired into humans. We are social creatures. So part of what we take our cues from in the external environment is what other people are doing. So, you know, somebody who is four foot eight would not feel short if everybody else around them were four foot eight. You know? So it's just how we're wired which is fine. You know, it serves all kinds of good purposes. But in the narrow context of trying cases, I think we have to recognize no two cases are alike. So you try a med mal case involving, I don't know, a sponge left in and an infection and a death. And I try a case with what appears to be identical facts and you get 5 million and I get 3 million you know, I'm going to feel bad. I didn't get 5 million. What comes out of that for me is, well, that no two cases are alike. Different juries, different judges, different evidence, different witnesses. It's impossible to compare. It's just totally impossible. I mean, and I know idiots who've gotten gazillion dollar awards and really fine lawyers who lose repeatedly for various reasons. So it is not like athletics where you can say, Let's compare how fast everybody runs the 100-yard dash. There's just too many differences. But as long as you're comparing, you're always going to be unhappy. You know, I haven't written as many books as Jerry Spence. I haven't gotten as many great verdicts as Brian Panish. I am not as rich as, you know, a gazillion lawyers out there. So, you know, whatever I'm going to use to compare, I can always either feel one up or one down, you know. I can compare myself to you, Dave, and say, oh, I've written more books than you and that make myself feel good. Or I could compare our bank accounts and say, oh, geez, you know, I'm really failing here. So this thing of comparison, while it serves an evolutionary purpose, I'm sure, really just has the potential to sour everything we do. And what I've tried to do is think of 
all my fellow lawyers and their achievements or their failures as sort of this garden filled with a variety of plants and flowers and each one's different and each one has something to appreciate and each one has something to be careful about. Not try to feel better or worse about myself because some people try to feel worse about themselves too. That's part of their psychology. And I think we all at different times want to feel better or worse about ourselves. But I try to avoid comparing myself to other lawyers. Again, in 200 years, nobody's going to know about any of us and nobody's going to care about any of us. I'm just going to keep putting one foot in front of the other and try to uh, let whatever wants to flow through me and into the world flow through me and into the world. Well, I've really appreciated our time together. I appreciate your generosity as a teacher and an influencer. I appreciate your vulnerability. I have literally, I asked about 5% of the notes I had, but I'm very thankful to have had the chance to talk to you. Really do wish you the best in this season. And I hope you continue to press hard on the purpose issue and the meaning issue and speak the message of values and being a truth teller and being mentally healthy. I hope those continue to resound out and your platform only expands. Thank you, Dave. I've enjoyed it. This has been fun. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested. Episodes drop on Thursdays. Subscribe now to catch every discussion. Thank you for listening.